Some commentators even wonder if the centurion might have been an early convert to Judaism, but there's pretty good reasons in the text to think that's not the case. But he is at least friendly to these local Jewish leaders. To the point that when these local Jewish leaders show up to Jesus, what they say is pretty striking, right? They come to Jesus in verse 4 and they plead with Jesus. It's almost as if they feel like we've got to convince Jesus to go to the centurion. Right, we've got to plead. So what do they plead? They plead and they say, he is worthy to have you to do this for him. What is the, what is the, 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 the premises that the, that the conclusion is built on that he is worthy? Is he loves our nation. He is the one who built us our synagogue. Reason to believe what that means is he's, he probably was a financial contributor to the building of the synagogue, something that they have found synagogues in this day and age uh, with, with placards that say this was built money by, contributing by, Gentiles, right? There might be various reasons to do that, just goodwill among the kind of people or whatever else. So we're not exactly sure why, but he was most likely wealthy. He wealthy enough to have a servant and wealthy enough that he contributed funds that helped towards the building of the synagogue for the Jewish people. Remember that little line, he is worthy. That's going to be, that's, we're going to get a play there in this passage. So Jesus, I, I love that part. Like one of my favorite, I, when, I, when I'm preaching passages, I always find a couple little hinges of a few words that really settle in my brain. And the first one is, and Jesus went with them. Like just very simple. It wasn't, didn't seem to be, it's almost like you didn't really need to be that persuasive. Like I was going to come anyway. Like how many people come to Jesus that he rejects them for help? You don't have that story, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, okay. It's almost like I, I, I was ready to go as soon as you said sick. Uh, so Jesus went with them. But then here's where the story gets interesting. He's not far from the house. He sends apparently a, a second contingency of, of, of like a second troop of, of people to give his word for him. And he says through these friends, the centurion, Lord, don't trouble yourselves for I am not worthy. So there's a play. It's an interesting one that Luke has done very deliberately that the Jewish people are saying he is worthy for you to do this for him. But now the centurion himself is saying, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. There's some reason for that of, you know, there's some cultural things going on there um, of, yes, if a Gentile walks into, if a Jewish person walks into a Gentile's house, there's a sort of ceremonial uncleanliness scene. We see that also in Luke's writings of in Acts, whenever Peter goes to uh, the house of Cornelius, that has made it more clear there. But probably what he's primarily saying here is more just, it's a, it's a statement of humility, and we'll return to that. It's probably not primarily concerned about this religious passage, uh, rights, but he's more concerned about just saying, I'm, I'm kind of a nobody. Why would you come to me? I'm not worthy. But then is when he has this extraordinary demonstration of faith. I'm a person under authority. When I tell someone to do something, they do it. You are under more authority than I'm under, so if you just say the word, that's my second little, the, the, the biblical words that ring in my head from this. Say the word, verse 7. Say the word and let my servant be healed. Jesus heard these things in verse 9. He marveled 
He turned to the crowd and he said, I tell you, not even Israel have I seen such faith. This word marveled is really, it's plain, there's something really funny and interesting going on with the word marveled here throughout all the Gospels, but specifically in Luke, the word marveled is almost always used at people's response to Jesus's display of greatness, of divinity, of power, Uh, that Jesus doesn't marvel at humans. Humans marvel at Jesus. You get this word in Luke 4.22 when everyone marvels at Jesus. 8.25, the disciples are marveling at Jesus. 20.26, Jesus answers a question. The leaders marvel at Jesus' answer. And probably most clearly demonstrating how the power of this word is in in chapter 24 when Peter leaves the empty tomb, it says he was marveling. That's about as astonished as you could be, right? Walking away from a tomb that's empty. Peter is is marveling at the empty tomb. And so the word here is very interesting that Jesus is marveling at the faith of this centurion. It's the one time that Jesus marvels that we have in Luke. So what is it about this man's faith that is so marvelous that's really our question and the way i want to the way i want to phrase the question is essentially who's right is he worthy or is he not worthy is the centurion's self-awareness correct he's not worthy for jesus to do this or is the jewish leader's self-awareness is their awareness of his situation is that their accurate one is he worthy or is he not worthy it's a bit of a trap question and we'll get to that but that's okay so let's do a character study about the centurion from it only what we know in the passage so what do we know about the centurion well we know that he's wealthy we've already said that in the very first verse we're going to give the benefit of the doubt that he's compassionate because of the value that he has for his servant now that is at best a, that's a very generous interpretation, but it's an interpretation based upon the Jewish leaders as well. In other words, he might have multiple reasons to value his servant, right? He might value getting breakfast at 7 a.m. and when the servant's sick, he doesn't get breakfast, right? So there, there might be some instrumental reasons to value the servant, but there's good reason to think here that, that this person, by all accounts of what the others are saying about him, he's not merely valuing his servant instrumentally. He's valuing his servant because he's compassionate. From what the Jewish leaders say, a third thing we can learn about this centurion is that he's respectful of the Jewish culture. Right? So that, that's some of the, the, the commentators, that's why they've even, some have even said, is he actually like an early convert? Because he gave money to build a synagogue and he's so respectful of the culture. And most have said he's probably something more like uh, a foreigner living in a strange land who rather than tries to lord over and say, you, your culture is bad, that kind of comes to just respect and admire the culture of the land that he's living in, right? Almost like some sort of anthropologist. And so he's respectful of the Jewish culture. He's generous with his money. So he's not only wealthy, he's generous. Lord, help us all to be that. Anyone who's gifted with wealth, help us to be also gifted with generosity. We see the generous by the nature of him giving. And what I already pointed out is that we have good reason to believe he's humble. That this claim of I'm not worthy tends to think that it's less about um, doing Jesus a favor of not making him unclean than it is a recognition that he's just simply not worthy. The same way that Peter was after Peter first meets Jesus in the great catch of fish. Peter says the exact same thing. 
I'm not worthy. So his response, parallel response to Peter, there's something about you, Jesus, that makes me not worthy. John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to unstrap his sandal, right? So we're getting, linguistically, this centurion is being placed in the same place as the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. So we see he is humble. We see that he has an awareness of his authority, and this is where the passage really gets the interesting part of the passage, where he says, I'm not worthy, you don't have to come, but I understand authority, and if I say go to someone, he will go, and if I say come, he will come, and Jesus, you can do the same, so why don't you just say the word? Like The, the authority that he represents here is not so much like, hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm a man of authority, I'm kind of a big deal, I don't know if you know it. I'm, t- I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty powerful. It's more like, it's this good self-awareness, like, Jesus, I have authority over a certain 100 men to kind of soldiers to do what I want them to do. And it's actually sort of beautiful, isn't it? Because he recognizes, while I can tell certain people to do certain things and they will do them, I have a problem in my life right now that I have no authority over, namely someone I care for who's sick to the point of death. So I don't have any authority over that. Right? So it's, it's like a good self-awareness that it's a hum, it shows his humility. It's not, well, I'm so powerful that I also should have power over my servant's health. Right? We all know, no, you don't have power over that. But there's the, the beautiful part of the faith is that somehow he has the faith that I understand authority. And I understand that I have a servant who's sick that's outside of my realm of authority. And here's where the faith comes in. But I have faith that somehow Jesus... My servant's wellness is under your authority. That Jesus, you have greater authority than what I have. So it's a, an argument from the lesser to the greater, right? He's like saying, I'm a, I have some little amount of authority. But man, Jesus, you have really great authority. And if you say be well, my servant will be well. That's the say the word faith that we see from the centurion. Now, when I was prepping this, and I got to the point of Jesus proclaiming, I've not seen anyone in Israel with such faith. My first thought was, well, that seems like a bold claim, right? Not to, not to argue against Jesus' words, but I want to understand what Jesus is saying about this, because already in Luke, as we've traversed through the book, have we seen fairly marvelous stories and accounts of faith. Luke 6, one of my favorite, my favorite miracle, the miracle that sticks on my mind is, is sort of extraordinary is when the man with the withered hand and Jesus says, stretch out your hand, right? So Jesus tells someone to do something he literally cannot do. But in the, in the saying, in the command is also the ability to obey that command, right? So stretch out your hand. Imagine the faith that it took for that man to try to obey that command. He didn't say, that's ridiculous, Jesus. I can't stretch out my hand. I've never been able to stretch his hand. Can't you see my hand? It's, it's not stretchable. But the, the faith that was required for the man to say, I'm going to attempt, I'm going to will to stretch out my hand. Or the friends who earlier in Luke dropped their friend through the ceiling in faith that if they could just get their friend to Jesus, Jesus could heal. And that seems like a pretty marvelous amount of faith. Or even fishermen who have fished all night and caught no fish. And Jesus says, hey, go out there and lay your nets down. It took faith for them to even try to do that rather than say, that's kind of ridiculous, Jesus. We're the fishermen. 
you're the preacher, you don't know what you're talking about, we know where the fish are. So we have all of these examples of faith, but yet Jesus says something particular, something special, something highlighted about the centurion's faith. And what I like to call it, what I think that it is, and, and we'll, we'll, uh, this, is, this is conjecture at this point because it's not in the text. What well, is in the text is not even in Israel, though I found such faith. But what I've landed on as my uh, working thesis, let's put it, is that there's something about his faith that's remarkable in that it's presumptuous in the best kind of being presumptuous. In other words, no one has ever told him Jesus can f- perform miracles from a distance. But yet he kind of did the math and said, you know what? I think that Jesus can do this. Another example, I believe, of presumptuous faith is the woman, remember, who's sick and has the the sickness that will not be healed even with all the doctors. And she walks up to Jesus in a crowd. And Luca doesn't tell us, but I believe it's in Matthew. In her mind, she says, if I can just touch his cloak, I will be healed. Right? That's presumptuous. It's presumptuous for her to just sort of walk up, touch Jesus, and Jesus, is, he's quite baffled by her faith as well, right? So I think these are beautiful pictures of this presumptuous faith that allows us to understand what it's like to be able to really place our faith in Jesus. Now, when I say presumptuous, I, I don't intend for us to do stupid things and then claim, oh, well, I'm going to place my faith in Jesus. Therefore, he will protect me while I run through fire or whatever other. I, I even hate to give examples. Right? In my church, I did not give any examples for fear that some 14-year-old kid would do it and say, well. But you, you, so you have to place your faith under the promises of Jesus, right? But at the same time, there's these times where you have a, an illness in your family or in your life. You're looking for a job situation. There's no promise that you're going to be healed. There's no promise that this new job will be given to you. But you can have presumptuous faith as you're asking for that. And part of what I think this passage is helping us do, and I'll speak straight to all of us, is I think it's helping us take faith back to the evangelical church rather than be scared to talk about faith because somehow we feel like that faith healers, Pentecostal movement, sort of that these people that take faith and distort it in a certain way, that we're sometimes scared to just claim faith, just to pray and trust that Jesus will give us things as our Father by our faith. Right? So, I have four teenage kids. One's 19, but the other three are not at the age of driving, yet they're all in high school to the point they want to be as places as if they were at the age of driving, which means I'm essentially a professional Uber driver who doesn't get paid for any of my Ubering. (laughs) But my point of this is that not only when I'm driving my own kids around, I'm often driving other people's kids around too, right? Oh, you're going there, basketball practice. We, we, have a whole, we have a whole system with basketball practice with a couple other people from our church where, you know, it's like, are you picking up? Are you delivering? Whatever else. And it's not at all presumptuous for my children to say, hey, dad, on our way back home for basketball practice, can you stop at Starbucks so I can get a drink? I have no idea why teenagers want to spend $5 at Starbucks for drinks. 
We don't pay for their Starbucks. They have to pay for their own Starbucks. How did Starbucks figure this out, that teenagers think that $4.99 is not too much for a drink? I don't understand it, but if they want to pay for their own Starbucks, it's not presumptuous for my children to say, hey, Dad, can you stop by Starbucks? But somebody else's kid, that would be pretty presumptuous if they said, hey, Mr. Oaks, I know it's only 20 minutes out of the way, but you mind running me by the mall? I'm going to go buy some jeans before you take me home after basketball practice. And my point is this. My children, specifically my sons, my sons tend to just kind of be boys. They just kind of, you know, they, my daughters will make requests. I would delight in more requests from my boys. I would delight in it. I would, for my boys to say more frequently, hey, dad, can we go driving on Sunday afternoon? Or something they said this week. I want to practice my driving. Can we go driving? Like, as a dad, I delight in that. I want, them to, I want them to ask things of me. And sometimes I wonder, has my theology somehow gotten in the way of me delighting my father by making requests of him? Have I somehow theologically convinced myself that I have to put on the word of the prayer so much off, so often, if it be your will, that sometimes I don't even make the requests that would delight my father for me to ask with presumptuous faith that he might give me. Now, presumptuous faith doesn't mean he will give it. Right? That's the whole idea of Jesus only heals if you have faith is blown up if you just read the Gospels. Right? In this case, we have someone who had faith and Jesus met his faith. And there's other occasions in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus does a miracle in spite of no faith. Remember on the boat, the disciples are all terrified. Jesus does a miracle and says, what little faith? It would be ridiculous to say, well, Jesus only did that miracle because they had faith. Like, you know, no, there's, there's examples in Luke, in the Gospels, of times where Jesus, Jesus does the miracles whether he chooses to or not. And here's what I think is so amazing about this say the word faith in this passage is that the centurion, despite not being in the Jewish religion, despite not having any encounter personally with Jesus that we know of, right? He's heard about Jesus. It seems like it's all secondhand. Has a presumptuous enough faith to say, say the word and my servant will be healed. And what happens? They get home. This actually, it's interesting in the passage, you never actually get Jesus saying the word recorded for us. Jesus, it's almost as if Jesus got distracted, like, whoa, I didn't even say the word, but I'm just looking at his faith. And then they get home, and Luke tells us that his servant was, in fact, healed. I suppose Jesus did say the word, but we don't get it recorded for us. Okay, we could stop now. And in some sense, I think we've done justice to the text. But in another sense, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with where we sit, because... All we have done at this point is a character study of the centurion in which the application is an easy one. Be like the centurion, have faith. That, I think, is the exact right application of the passage. But, by all accounts, our reading and our sermon so far has been incredibly and entirely man-centered, hasn't it? We focused on this man. We focused on what his attributes were. We focused on his faith. We've said, I want to be like that. And that's not, that'll preach, as they say in the South where I grew up. That'll preach, right? You could, you could give a rousing sermon with, have faith like the centurion. And it's even the appropriate way to conclude this passage. But there's something missing, and that is the primary agent in the passage is not really the centurion's faith. It's Jesus. 
We don't want to preach the passage. We don't ever want to preach the passage that we lose Jesus. And in this is an interesting case in which because Jesus is pointing the followers to the centurion's faith, we can actually get our focus on the centurion's faith to the point that we forget that the person who, the passage is all about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus and what Jesus has done. And we don't want to be man-centered in our reading of any text, and particularly this one. I think another danger Another, and so it'll preach to say, hey, have faith like the centurion. A danger of only doing that is some of you, I guarantee, right now are saying, but I don't have faith like the centurion. I don't. And I've been there myself. Uh, for seven or eight years now, I've struggled with an inner ear disorder. The, it, it's one reason I love being here. It, it drums affected and my lights. So my own worship experience in my church is often I'm running in and out. It's, I, I, get, I, get, I get an ear problem. And there have been times in that process that I did not, for the, for the sake of my soul and my family and my spiritual growth, endure by faith that issue as well as I should have. I turn to, to inappropriate things at times to appease the, the discomfort. And then there's people in our church. We, we lost a man recently who had, had, who had been given six months to live and four years later died of cancer, right? And I watched Dave Koontz, and I think he responded so differently to his trial. So maybe Dave has centurion faith, and I don't have centurion faith. And if I only preach this passage about the centurion and his faith, then some of you are going to be a little bit more like me and say, oh, but what about me? I don't feel like I have that right now. How do I drum that up? How do I, how do I walk out the door and give myself an IV of faith to be able to encounter whatever it is that I have to encounter this week? And I don't think that's the point. That's the danger with man-centered preaching, man-centered Bible reading. Because the point is less, and I'm going to say this carefully, the point is less about the amount of faith the centurion had it's more about the object of his faith. It's not so much his faith. Yes, it's presumptuous faith. Yes, it's remarkable. Yes, it's amazing. But the most important thing about the centurion's faith is it was faith in the correct object, Jesus. Because if the amount of faith is what matters, there's plenty of people. We could all walk out and encounter people in our life this week who might have more faith in their own religious belief system than we do, even in the Bible or the gospel. But it really doesn't matter how much faith you have. It matters what are you placing that faith in. I used to teach a class of undergrad students at Biola, and, and we, we, did, we did world religions, and I used this point, and, and this is a, an example after, you know, you teach the same thing over and over again, and I got this really good illustration that I pulled back out and dusted off as I prepared this sermon, and here's the illustration. Imagine a chasm it's a, that, that requires a bridge, and on the one hand is a bridge completely comprised of toilet paper. It's a bridge made out of toilet paper. And beside it is a, is a sturdy wooden bridge, still scary. And the person standing in front of the toilet paper bridge says, I have 100% faith that this bridge will hold me, right? As soon as they walk onto that bridge, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. It doesn't have anything to do. They could have way more faith. And there could be someone very nervous, very meek, very scared to step upon the safe bridge. They say, I only have 1% faith that this bridge will make it. I don't have very much faith at all. And they take their first weeble step, little nervous step onto the bridge, and it holds. 
Why? Because it's the object of our faith that matters, not the amount of it. Now, here's the beautiful part after I use this illustration. Uh, our worship pastor, this is the great thing about uh, being in a church and having people. He, he came up and he said, and the beautiful part about your illustration is the more steps you take, the more your faith grows, right? You're 1%. Oh, it holds. It's a little, I'm still scared. It's like, now I've got 5%. Maybe I'm halfway across and I'm at 45%. But my faith grows in the appropriate thing as I move towards it. So I want us to conclude by reminding ourselves, yes, let's be like the centurion. Yes, let's have faith. Yes, do those things in your life. Regular Bible reading, regular occurrence, regular uplifting your soul with the brothers and sisters in order to have the kind of faith like the centurion has. But at the end of the day, don't trust your activity to generate your faith. Just completely focus what is my faith placed upon and make sure you're placing your faith upon the correct object. Jesus. And that's how we can indeed have remarkable, presumptuous, marvelous faith like the centurion, even if it's only a little bit of faith, but if it's placed on Jesus and his work, particularly Jesus and his work on the cross for our salvation, no matter how small amount of faith you have, we're placing it in the exact right object. We'll pray that the Spirit will help us do exactly that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're grateful for your text. We're grateful for your passage. We're grateful for the gift of faith. Um, And we pray that you would help us to apply and to designate the faith of our own hearts in you. And those of us who, there are people in this room that probably don't have faith in Jesus. We pray that you would would generate that faith. If, if that's uh, any of us, that you would make us aware of that. And I also, Jesus, pray those of us who do know you, you would expand our faith, causing our faith to be presumptuous and placed upon the right object. In Jesus' name we pray.